You are creative. We all are. Creativity is not something for the gifted few. Our students are creative. God hardwired every one of us to create and invent and make and sow and build and construct and generate and form and craft and design and originate and initiate and coin and formulate and compose. Are you getting these? And put together and cook and manufacture and produce and cause and bake and shape and concoct and engineer and think up lists like this. A thesaurus is a wonderful thing. Cultivating four C's in children. The four qualities that we've been looking at this week are character, conviction, curiosity, and now today, creativity. But what is it that we're talking about? Creativity is the desire and ability to make new things. That's it. That's what creativity is. The desire to make new things, the ability to make new things. Whether that's a birdhouse or a scrapbook page, a drawing, a painting, a treehouse, a model car, a poem, a new recipe, a PowerPoint presentation, a song, a new quilt design, a story, and we could go on and on. Creativity is an aspect of being made in the image of the Creator. In Genesis 1.26 we read, Then God said, Let us make three hugely significant words. And we would do well to think about each one of those. Let us make. And we'll do that in just a moment. Let us make man in our, our image and let them rule. I want you to see the parallel between let us make and let them rule. So let's take a look. God is saying, let us make. I would suggest to you that let is a word that implies choice, decision. We're going to do something. Let. It's a, a word of decision. Us is a word that speaks of community and relationship. Make is the creative word. Man, he says, is to, we are going to let, again, speaking of choice, let them, in relationship and community, let them rule. And when we rule, it is an expression of creativity. So three words that capture these ideas. Let is a word of choice. Us, a word of community, and make, a word of creativity. Three aspects of being in the image of God. Right here in this passage. We are people of choice. And we become more and more human as our ability to make godly and wise choices is developed. We are people of community. And it is in relationship and in community that we find belonging and identity. And part of being in the image of God is, is being creative. This desire and the ability to make, to develop. A few observations. Growing in creativity is growing more like God. If the ability to create is part of being in his image, then as we grow in our creativity, in our expressions of creativity, that's growing more like him. A second observation is that creativity looks different in each person. When I am creative, it's going to look a little different than when you are creative. And when e each of your students is going to bring a different a different shape to that 
And it's important that we uh, develop our ability to see and appreciate a range of creative expression, not just the one that we tend to bring to the classroom. A third observation is that institutionalized schools, and that's what most of us uh, participate in, institutionalized schools are not the best environments for creativity. And I just want to recognize that up front. Homes often can be much better places for creative development and expression. And um, if, if as teachers we understand that, we can partner more effectively, perhaps in our homework assignments and, and so on. Uh, the more creative assignments can be ones that we give for home, perhaps. But just because I believe this is true does not mean that we can't help to encourage and nurture creativity. So how do we do that? As teachers, we can nurture creativity in our students by creating the conditions where creativity thrives and by minimizing the conditions that hinder it. Our job is not to insist, okay, Johnny, go home or go to your desk, go to your desk and be creative for the next hour. It doesn't work that way. Our job is to create the conditions where creative expression happens and to minimize those conditions that kill it. So, what are the conditions that nurture creativity? First is nature. Laying outside under the stars, romping with a dog, taking a walk in the woods, chasing a butterfly, catching toads, planting in freshly tilled soil, watching an anthill, wading in a stream, trapping a snake. There's something about nature that awakens creative expression in us. There's something about those experiences that for some of us inspire a song. For others, dreams. For some, maybe a journal entry or a descriptive paragraph. For me, it inspires building something. Maybe a fort. Nature. There's something about that that awakens a desire to, to do something, to make, to create. And so it will encourage us as teachers to find ways to get our students outside. Not all of the experiences that I just mentioned are, are ones we can give our students. That's a problem that, that we have when we have 10, 15 students. You can't necessarily have these kinds of experiences, but there are many of these that we can have. Charlotte Mason, a 19th century educator from England, took her students outside just about every afternoon. In the morning, she said, that's the time to do our reading, our seat work. In the afternoon, we go outside. And we, it's not just that we go outside for recess. We go outside to sit, to look, to think, to dream, to write, to draw. Let's be creative in finding ways we can get our students into nature. Maybe you want to have a star night. One of, the, one of our favorite memories as a family is being out, laying outside on the trampoline at 4 in the morning. It is just blistering cold. But we're there with blankets and we're watching a meteor shower. That particular morning, we were able to count about six or 700. Delightful, delightful experience. Can we arrange experiences with our children in the evening? Let's become ex experts at what is available outside for our students. 
in this area. I know some of the things. I don't know what's available in your area, but find out what's available. We have a wildlife refuge close by. Just the other day, I was over at a park about 10 miles from here and walked down by the stream. And here there was a fellow out in the stream, and he was... Uh, I had his waders on and he had a net and I was trying to think if he was a normal normal fisherman found out he wasn't because what he would do it he would take his net he was down along the bottom then he'd come up and he dumped this stuff out it basically looked like mud and I said well what are you looking for and and he was going through the mud and then he'd show these little teeny fish and some other microorganisms he said I'm getting these he said the creeks around here are some of the most alive bodies of water in the state of Pennsylvania come to find out that this fellow works for the University of, uh, or Penn State University, and that he has a program for teachers and for students in area schools. So I got all excited about this. We now have it arranged where some of our teachers can go and spend a day with him on a sailing ship in, at Presque Isle Bay on Lake Erie. And for three hours, they're on the sailing ship, and for three hours, they are in the laboratory uh, looking at the and doing counts of the stuff that they found. Not only is that something that our teachers can do, but they take, uh, they, they said they take our students out on this experience. That's just something we've recently learned about how our students can get out into nature here in this area. But let's become experts of what the opportunities are. Whether it's bird watching, um, there's just so many ways in which we can bring our students out into nature. But the point here is not so much just getting them out there, but giving them opportunities for creative expression. There are a number of helpful resources on how teachers can use experiences in nature to develop creativity. And if you can't find any of those, contact me. I'll be happy to point you in some of those directions. But give your students opportunities to write poetry, to draw, to make collections, uh, write descriptions, write their thoughts and feelings, plant flower gardens, make maps of the skies, write stories. Maybe, maybe put them out into different sections, maybe out in the woods somewhere, and give them a square meter of, of real estate and say, I want you to catalog everything, every living thing that's within that square meter. It's amazing how much there is when we take the time to actually look. Nature nurtures creativity. A second condition that nurtures creativity would be inspiring toys and materials. Not all toys and games are created equal. Some toys inspire and some toys struggle. The kinds of materials and toys and games that I think are so vital for developing creativity are craft kits, uh, sets, blocks, Lego, boards, building material, uh, chemistry sets, rockets, models, things of that nature, things that you can build and do. Paint and yarn and glue and popsicle sticks and brushes. As I was uh, thinking about this, I remembered back about uh, 20 years ago, I was in our local, I was, I was just recently married, and I was in our local Piggly Wiggly, that's a grocery store chain in the south, by the way, it was the first grocery store chain, but I was in our local Piggly Wiggly, I'm trying to find something for my wife, I didn't go in there often, and so I didn't know what I was looking for, but I'm kind of fixated on looking at something, and I hear something down at the other end of the aisle, and I look, and here is this, this black lady coming to me, toward me, with her arms stretched out like this. And she said, Stephen, let me give you a hug. And so I did, and she did. It was Mrs. Peoples, my fourth, and then my fifth, and then my sixth grade, social studies and art teacher. And so many memories came flooding back because her classroom truly was a classroom that inspired creativity. It was a classroom that was full of materials to create with, plaster of Paris and, and paints. I'll have to tell you about one thing about Mrs. Peoples. She, the way she moved things around the classroom was not by passing stuff. 
it was it was the uh, it was airmail. She would just throw. You know, her, her room was one of those rooms you walk in and you just you kind of relax because there's there's not a whole lot of order to it. It's it's just piled high with all kinds of things. Some of us may relax, others may get stressed. But the she would if if you if you needed a bottle of glue, she just find it as close she could and toss it to you. And the reason I remember that is because there, on this particular day, I was having some uh, relational struggles with a classmate of mine. And uh, I, wasn't, I don't remember why he was mad at me, but he was mad at me. And I was kind of bothered about that, I think. But somewhere along the line, I needed glue for whatever I was working on. And so I just kind of holler out, I said, glue. And Mrs. Peoples, she reaches over for the glue bottle. And she rears back, and she throws it toward me. Now, the fellow that I'm having relational issues with is sitting behind me. And there's a few times in my life when moments of spontaneity have, have overcome me. And this was one of those. So I'm watching the glue bottle come, and it occurs to me that if I were to duck, and so I did. I, did, I only had enough time to think that far, you understand. You know, if I were to duck. I didn't, I didn't think about consequences. I just, and so I ducked, and the glue bottle smack into my friend. It did not help our relational issues. <laughs> By thoughtful and liberal selection of toys and materials, that we surround our students with, we can encourage and nurture creativity. A third condition that nurtures creativity are spaces owned by the students. This is important, men and women. It's important for us to have places that are comfortable and relaxed in order for creativity to flow. And I understand this is a challenge for classrooms to have. But we need to recognize this. I think if you think about yourself and the times when you're most creative, it often happens in certain places. There's some places that it happens and some places that it's hard, for happen, hard to happen. I notice in my children that they need and they like places that are their own, that they can give some, some shape to it, uh, whether it's a house, that they've made under a sheet out in the middle of a perfectly good living room and yet they need to make a house within a house in order for it to be a place of creative expression. My mom, who is a particular, rather particular lady, understood this and she made sure that there were spaces that belonged to her but there were also spaces that belonged to me. And this hat for in my case, it was the basement. And she said, it's okay for you to have your lab in the basement. And so that's where I sat up. Had a, had a corner where I had my, my table and my uh, rows of chemicals. And fortunately, I went to a public school where the, they had, it had been a high school, but it had been turned into an elementary school. And so they had this wonderful high school lab fully stocked, but nobody used it. And so when I found out about that, I'd, I'd ask for permission to go in and see if we had things. And, and then I would, um, you know, I'd see something I really wanted and I'd take it out to the teacher and I'd say, Here, here's a bottle of um, silver nitrate. Do you, you know, I, this is something I kind of need in my lab at home. Uh, so, oh, just take it. And so I had a, I had a great collection of chemicals but mom, mom uh, she, she had lots of space for, for giving me place where I could be creative. And while I'm talking about the silver nitrate, uh, that's, I actually violated one of her spaces with it because I wasn't given the whole basement. But you see, I had a number of things gone, and, this, and my lab table got full, and so I needed to expand. So the, the nicest place to expand to was the freezer and it had a nice flat surface to it. And so on top of the freezer, I set up, what I was working on was trying to plate silver. 
And I knew that if you ran electric current through solutions that had silver in, that you could actually get the silver metal out of it. Once again, I thought, well, if I could get the silver out of the silver nitrate, I could sell the silver and finance further uh, investigations. And so I was trying to figure out how to, how to do this. And I was set up on the, the top of, of, this, of the freezer. And I, I had mom's Pyrex, glass Pyrex uh, baking dishes there to do this in because I needed nice surface area. And I, I was mixing it up and I spilled. I spilled the solution. I had the silver nitrate in the water and, and, I, and it spilled. And I got it all over my hands and it also spilled down over the, the, um, the freezer. But not to, to worry because it's a clear solution and so everything's fine. Well, I had everything set up, had the electricity going through it, and I knew it would take a little time for the, the silver to begin to, to form. And so I went outside and was, I think, uh, yeah, I was driving around on our motorbike. And so I did that for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and I came back in, and I went, as I'm going down to check on the silver plating, I look at my hands, and they're, they're dark. They're kind of a, a brown. And I thought, oh, I must have, there must have been something on the handlebars of the, the motorbike. But anyway, I went down, checked the silver plating, and, and it, was, it was going along nicely. It had some, some nice silver forming, so I was kind of excited about that. Then I looked at my hands again, and they were beginning to feel tight. And by this time, they were black, dark black, entirely black. And they were starting to do this number because of how tight they were. And I thought, well, I must have got, there must have been grease on the motorbike handlebar. So I was, I'll go out. Well, first of all, I tried to wash with soap and water. Nothing happened to the black. So I went out to the, uh, the gas pump and I put some gas on. I thought, well, that'll take care of it. It didn't. They were still very, very black. I'm starting to get a little worried by this time. So I go into our trusty set of encyclopedias and I look up silver nitrate only to discover that silver nitrate turns flesh black. It was not just a coating of black, it had actually turned the skin black. And it was several weeks, actually about, a, about 10 days uh, before. Uh, I, I, it was really painful for a while, but this is kind of the way I was, and it did get better in 10 days. It was basically over. But not only did it turn my hands black, it also turned my mother's freezer black but she was very good about that and uh, she understood something of how much that that I that the rest of her children needed spaces for me she gave the basement to do uh, to do uh, to set up a lab for my older brother she gave a large space in order for him to set up a train track and to build their rockets we need spaces that are owned by the student Many, or as, 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 um, as teachers, we don't have a whole lot of options here necessarily. They have their desk. Uh, but maybe we can make some corners in the classroom where there's materials and, and some space in which students can go to and uh, be creative. I remember in fifth grade, the teacher taking a corner of the classroom and saying, we're going to build a little town here. And when you're done with assignments, when you're done with with uh, your, your regular project, you can go over and work at building this town. And she had materials and so on. It was a, it was a great way to make a space where creativity could happen. My wife has followed in my mom's footsteps in, in really having space for the children. Uh, the other day I went home and the front door, or the door that I normally come into, was locked. I thought, well, this is strange. This is never locked. But anyway, so I went around to the front door. Well, that was exactly what uh, our children had intended. They had asked for permission to use the living room, the hallway, the, the steps going upstairs to set up a booby trap to get dad. And so when I opened the front door, it pulled a string. That string went kind of up and around, and it, uh, uh, I forget what all it did, but it, it released a golf club, which came swinging down, and then there was a, a pillow that came flying out and hit was supposed to hit me on the face. It didn't quite do it, but it was close enough for the effect. And then I got to looking around and, and was, was impressed with my wife. 
that she was okay with them actually taping stuff on the walls and, and all the things that you had to do in order to create what they did. A fourth condition that nurtures creativity are invitations and opportunities to create. We need to give our students many opportunities here for producing meaningful things, creations. I'm not talking about worksheets. I'm not talking about filling in the blanks. I'm not talking about merely uh, reading something. I'm saying what are creations that they can participate in, poems and stories and booklets, drawings, paintings, etchings, collections, inventions, papers, speeches, reports, posters, skits, newspapers, programs, suppers. I'll just give you two examples, two wonderful memories from when I was a high school principal and teacher of some creativity that I saw in my students. The one is that instead of doing a final program one year, we decided to do an Old Testament museum. And uh, we had had Old Testament survey that year. And we, the students got in, we put them into groups and they needed to come up with a way to uh, illustrate, to exhibit each book of the Old Testament. And so uh, they went all out. And then they had, it was a large room where they were able to do this in. And as people would walk into the museum, the first person you met was Goliath. And they had made a sculpture, the correct height, and they had a recording, so he would welcome everyone as they came in the door. And then there was a, there was a different exhibit for each book, and we followed a historical, uh, a chronological approach throughout. And it was just so interesting to see the kinds of things that they came up with uh, to illustrate. One of my favorites was uh, from one of the, the prophets, and it's the vision of the prophet where there is a woman in a basket, and uh, the woman's down in the basket, and the prophet comes along and picks the lid off, and this woman pops out and says, your sin, and goes back down. It's kind of a neat image. And that's what they chose for that particular uh, book. And so when, when the parents would get to that place, you know, it, there was a sign on the basket that said, pick me up. And so they'd pick me up and they would, the student would pop out and say, your sin, and then they'd go back down in. Uh, whenever we talk about the Old Testament Museum, that's one of the things that comes up. A second example of creativity and, that I saw in my students was we'd had a particularly difficult year. It was. It was, a, it was probably the worst year of my life, and it had to do with what was happening in school. And so the following year, I knew that we needed to do something as a school in order to get the culture back. And so on the first day of school, I told our, our 9 through 12, we were all together, not grades 9 through 12, and I said, we're, gonna, we're going to take every Thursday afternoon at, from lunch on, we're not going to have any studies, we're going to take that time and we're going to do something as a class. I said, it's really wide open what we do. I'm going to ha I have veto power, but I want you to dream about what we could do with that time. And what was decided was that, at least for the first part of the year, they were going to prepare a Thanksgiving meal. But they weren't going to just, of course, you know, why does that take every Thursday for several months? What they were going to do, they said, we want to do it without using any modern appliances or, or anything. We're gonna have an outdoor meal and we want to grow everything that we serve or kill it. The guys wanted to do the killing and, and the, the, the women wanted to do the growing, but they did. So they went out and without garden tillers, they worked up some ground and, and this is in the south, so you have a really long growing season. And they, they planted a bunch of stuff that they were gonna serve. Uh, we, we broke the rules a couple places. We didn't kill everything, that, that all the meat that we ate. But you know, till it was said and done, those students had pulled off a meal like you wouldn't believe. And it was all done either in Dutch ovens or over open fires. They had a spit. They had, I think it was like four or five different kinds of meat that they served and about 10 other dishes from including desserts that were all done outside. They taught themselves how to do it. Uh, and this, we used our Thursdays to practice. The fellows helped with the cooking, but they also went out and used axes, not chainsaws, to cut down trees to make some 
uh, log benches for the parents to sit, in, sit on. And it turned out to be just a huge success. They were being creative. Parents loved, and, and in fact, I haven't checked recently, but I know that that was a tradition then that continued for several years. Invitations and opportunities to create are ways we can nurture creativity. A fifth way to nurture creativity is through worthwhile books. Very few things nurture creativity for some of us like books do. And we can surround our children with worthwhile books. Charlotte Mason called them living books. You know, books that you're going to read as an adult and thoroughly enjoy. But it's also books that children will thoroughly enjoy. It's books that when you open them up and you read a page, you have to turn the page and read another one. C.S. Lewis said that if a book isn't worth reading as an adult, it's not worth reading as a child. The great books are ones that can be enjoyed by children, but also enjoyed by adults. Uh, one of the things we can do is take a course in children's literature so that we learn something of the range of, of really good materials that are available. Some of my favorites include Winnie the Pooh, Amos Fortune, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, 20 and 10. Uh, Peace Child, Chariots in the Smoke by Margaret Epp, Island of the Blue Dolphins, and I have to mention The Adventures of the Mad Scientist Club. We can, be, we can surround our students with some of the great authors, Margaret, Marguerite D'Angeli, Scott O'Dell, Jean Fritz, Margaret Epp, and then we read. We read and read and read. We read aloud to our students. There are few things as educationally valid as a great read together. And I read, when I was a, a high school teacher, I read to my, uh, all the way up through 12th grade, day after day after day. Uh, we laughed our way through the pushcart war. We were amazed and challenged as we read Bruchko. We got a whole new perspective on the Israeli-Palestinian question when we read uh, Blood Brothers by Elias Shakur. We were sickened and saddened as we read Auschwitz by Miklos Nyesli. But it was a whole group experience. But you know that books can be expensive, but there are yard sales and public libraries and used bookstores that can minimize some of that pain. I have been creatively inspired many times by reading books, and maybe I'll just give another example or two here. In fourth grade, in our reader, we read about this, this young fella that made a computer out of a, out of a cardboard box. And I don't remember much, many of the details about that story, but I do remember saying, I could do that. But it was two years later before that story reached its uh, creative fruition. But I asked permission. Sixth grade was a wonderful year for me because I think I only spent about half the year in class. And the rest of the time, the teachers actually gave me permission to work on projects outside of class. And one of them was this one. I, I went to the teachers and I said, you know, I'd really like to make a computer out of a box. And I explained the plan. And they said, well, yeah, you can do that. So I, I asked two friends if they would help me. And what we did, the teacher brought us a big freezer box. And we decorated that box with, we, we got a, a bunch of Christmas lights and put all around it. And then we got uh, an old washing machine motor. And on the motor, we hooked a, um, uh, on, the, on the shaft there, we had some pieces of metal that was long enough. So when we go around, go slap, 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 slap. And then we got uh, some buzzers and hooked that all in. It was all on a switch. So you hit the switch and all this stuff would happen. The lights would go on, slap, 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 slap. We had a tape recorder and we just recorded random sound on the tape recorder. And so that would all be going at the same time. And then on the front of the box, we had um, insert questions here and just had a little slot. And then there was a start button and then there was a place to put your money because you know this was not a free computer. So insert nickel here. It was five cents a question. And then there was a slot where your answer would come out. And we inside the box, I sat on the one side with a typewriter. And on the other side of the box, 
was one of my friends, and he was the one that would take the money and the question. We, we tested it a couple times to work out the kinks and this realized we needed a third person. So we sat the box on a table, put a curtain on the table, and behind the table we had the third person, and he was back there with a set of encyclopedias. <laughs> I think we made about $15. We, students could come in and ask questions. The highlight was when the principal came in. We were all shook. We were nervous. Oh, no. Anyway, Mr. Gallagher comes up, and he writes a question. He sticks it in. It's been a, it's been a while since I've told this story. I'm, I'm wondering if I can remember the questions. The first question, I believe, was, what is LSD? Or what do those initials stand for? And there's, oh, man. So the principal kind of understood the operation, and he, I think he maybe knew that maybe we couldn't, wouldn't know how to look up LSD in the encyclopedia. Well, we didn't. So we're there, what is that? Does anybody know? No, nobody knows. Can you look it up? No, I don't know. What it, so um, we had a guarantee that if we couldn't answer your question, you got your money back. So we, we put it out the reject hole and, and put the nickel back out. So he wrote a second question. And this was, how many bones are in a rat? Well, here's a, look up rat, quick, look up rat. <laughs> and so he was trying to page through. But anyway, it felt like it was getting too long, so we refunded his money on that one. <laughs> and so he wrote a third question. It was, who is buried in Grant's tomb? He was like, we know who's buried in Grant's tomb? No, no, we don't know who's buried in Grant's tomb. <laughs> And we're just about ready to refund his money. And I said, no, no, I, here. And I started, I just typed out Grant. And I, I put that in the answer. And we heard him chuckling as he walked off. I found out later that it's not Grant. But anyway. <laughs> I had one other one, but we will pass on that one. Five conditions that nurture creativity. Now, what are the conditions that hinder creativity? The first is continuous activity. We may think that we should constantly keep our children occupied, and I understand that in the classroom we may have to do this, but that's, it, continuous activity really stifles creativity. Boredom, boredom, not activity, is the mother of creativity. Boredom is the mother of creativity. We need to develop environments where creativity can grow, but then relax. You can't force it. You can't make people be creative. I've found that children have to be bored before they become creative. They need opportunities to become absorbed in something. Several summers ago, uh, as we, the children were there at home and, and school was out, so they didn't have all that activity, they became attracted to the computer. And I said, uh, that's all of that. You're going to need to get off the computer and find something else to do. And they said, but, but what do we do? We're bored. Now, I offered a few suggestions, but I understood that most suggestions we offer in the context of I'm bored, don't satisfy the itch. Okay, so just offered a few suggestions and said, now you find something to do. And I figured it would take a day or two, and it did. They kind of sat around, what do we do, what do we do? But with time, the lights began to come on. In fact, what they wound up doing that summer was making out of wood some forms, and they went out and got some of that wonderful mud that Gerald was talking about, filled those forms with mud, baked those bricks in the sun, and wound up building a fort out in the, out in the pasture with that. And as they would dig down and get the clay, that's formed kind of the, the, the basement of their fort. Wound up making a really nice place, but they had to be bored first. Continuous activity is, hinders creativity. 
Goldman has said that the crucial element in, in cultivating creativity is time, open-ended time for the child to savor and explore a particular activity or material to make it her own. Perhaps one of the greatest crimes adults commit against a child's creativity is robbing the child of such time. And Gertrude Stein said this, it takes a lot of time to be a genius. You have to sit around so much doing nothing, really doing nothing. Another condition that hinders creativity is too much structure. Silvano Arietti, who wrote a book called Cultivating Creativity, said if you want to cultivate creativity, you need to allow for daydreaming, free thinking, aloneness, alertness, inactivity, gullibility. You see this is related to the first one. But the one I want to focus on here is this lack of, of, of structure. In some ways, or the kinds of structure that can be, uh, that we need to be careful about, are surveillance, where we hover over our children, making them feel like they're constantly being watched while they're working. That kind of attention hurts creativity. And another kind would be evaluation, where we are constantly commenting on well, you know, you could do this differently, or wouldn't it be better if you do this, and so on. That doesn't help creative development. Schools are structured environments. I realize that. And that's not necessarily the place for creative expression. So here again, it may be places where you'd have to, if, a, if an assignment calls for a lot of creativity, you may have to have that done at home. A third condition that hinders creativity are rapidly changing images and noise. There is growing research to indicate that television, videos, computer games, DVDs are seriously damaging our children in a multitude of ways, including their ability to think and create. Two examples that I'll give you of the research. And I'm just going to give you the titles of the books, because the title says it all. The first one is by Jane Healy, and the title is Endangered Minds, Why Children Don't Think and What We Can Do About It. And it's a discussion of how uh, the images and noise that is so uh, available to our students today is shaping their minds. The second one is called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And both of those are reads that uh, we would do well as teachers to be familiar with. I have a computer store in South Carolina. And along with the computer, there's actually two stores. There's Computer Solutions, and then there is a Radio Shack franchise. The, when we purchased the Radio Shack franchise, I sat down with the personnel from Radio Shack and said, you understand we're interested in having an electronics component to our computer store, but there's a, quite a few things that Radio Shack has that we're not comfortable using ourselves or selling. And do you have a problem with that? And they said, no, we don't. That's perfectly fine. So we went ahead with the, with the franchise. And of course, one of the things that we don't sell would be televisions. And on the day, though, that the Radio Shack personnel came in to set us up, the district manager Actually, no, it was higher than that. It was kind of one of the, the franchise managers of, of all the franchises came to where we were setting up the store, and he said, Stephen, I need to talk with you. So it, it was me and the, the district manager and the uh, kind of the head that were here talking. And he said, the reason I've come, I want to talk to you about the stuff that you're not willing to sell. He said, I understand that you're not planning to sell the home theater systems, the, the televisions, and so on. I said, that's correct. And he said, well, I, I want you to understand that that's a very poor business decision. And, and I stopped him right there and I said, well, sir, it's not a business decision. And I explained to him that, uh, that the, the ones of us who were owning this franchise, that our commitment to each other was that any one of us could veto, veto whatever we sold on basis of conscience. And that the guideline for us was that if we didn't feel comfortable using it, we wouldn't feel comfortable selling it. And so I said, it's not a matter of business, it's a matter of conscience. And he says, oh, and that, I think that surprised him just a bit. But then his next words were, but don't you feel like you're robbing your children by not having television? 
And so I kind of went on a tirade at that point, and I said, oh, absolutely not. I think I'd be robbing my children if I put that in their lives, and I would rob them of all the time and the space in order to grow and be creative and develop and read. And while I'm talking, I'm saying all this stuff, the, the local uh, the district manager, he's there nodding his head. He turns to his boss and he says, you know what, he's right. He said, I grew up just like he's talking about. And I know that I'm, I'm much more creative. I have uh, a much greater, better experience than so many of our children that are growing up with television. But you know, we don't have a TV, but we do have a computer. And I've found that's something we really have to manage. It's so easy to, for that to absorb time and energy that can much be better spent in creative expressions. But I want to quickly say that technology can develop creativity, uh, whether it's PowerPoint or, or a three-dimensional CAD. There's some places in which we can use that as a tool for developing creative expression. We've looked at a number of things that cultivate and that nurture creative expression. We've looked at some things that hinder creativity. But perhaps more than any, more important than anything we've talked about here this morning is the importance of affirming, encouraging teachers that delight in what their students are making. When we moved to South Carolina when I was seven, I was into Indians by this point, and one of the things I found was South Carolina clay. It's a red clay, and, and I, I knew that Indians made pottery, and so I just said, well, let me, maybe I can make pottery out of this. And so I was, I was experimenting behind our house, and I had a bunch of stuff spread out. Grandmother Brubaker came to visit us, and she came out, and she saw what I was doing, and she got so excited about, oh, this is neat. She said, Stephen, would you please make me a clay pot? And of course, I did, and you know, Quite a few years later, I was visiting grandmother, and one of the things that she wanted to do was to take me over to this little clay pot that I'd made for her. And then about a year ago, a year and a half ago, we were visiting her, and she brings this clay pot out again. And she said, Stephen, I want to give it to you. And so I got the only remaining uh, fruit of that creative effort. Three months later, Grandmother Brubaker died. I wonder if we understand the power of that kind of affirmation for what our students are making and drawing and writing and creating. You're creative, your students are creative. To cultivate and nurture creativity is to bring pleasure to God. Now to the Teachers Week Committee. I thought that this was a 30 minute presentation this morning. And it was not. And I told some people that I was going to be reading Faith the Cow this morning. I'm perfectly happy to take my seat. And I know that in terms of our agreement, I should. So the call is yours. This is a story of a cow, but more importantly, it's the story of a man, a man of conviction, a man of character, and a man of creativity. This is a story of faith. Faith was a young Guernsey cow, a heifer. Faith was a special Guernsey heifer. She had a job to do. Faith was a heifer with a mission. 
Dan West loved peace. Dan West hated war. Dan West was ordered to serve in the army, but when he told the officer that he couldn't carry a gun and he couldn't kill, the army sent Dan West home. Dan West knew there was a better way to settle disagreements. Once there was a war in Spain, instead of fighting, Dan West went to Spain to hand out food and supplies to families who lost everything in the war. He felt sad for people who lived where soldiers fought. He felt sad for the children who had no milk to drink. They had no milk to drink in Spain because the soldiers killed the cows. He felt sad for the mothers, fathers, daughters, sons, and grandparents who died in the fighting. When Dan West looked at the children in Spain, he thought of his Raleigh Polly babies at home, Joel and Janet, who had plenty to eat. Dan West thought about his childhood home in Ohio where Guernsey cows filled big red barns. Dan West had an idea. He dreamed of giving one milk cow to a starving family. One cow could feed many children. One cow could have many babies. These calves could feed even more families. But where would Dan West get a cow? He wasn't a farmer. Where would he get a ship to carry the cow? He wasn't a sailor. How would he take care of the cow while she sailed across the ocean? He wasn't an animal doctor. Just one man, just one cow. That just wouldn't be enough. So Dan West began to look for people who could help him make his dream come true. Dan West told a group of farmers in his church about the starving children in the world. And when Dan West finished, Virgil Mock stood up. Virgil Mock said, have faith, Dan West. Dan West said, I have faith, Virgil. I believe God is telling us to help. We need to send heifers to give milk for the children, but I can't do it by myself. I need help. Virgil Mock said again, Have faith, Dan West. Dan West said, I do have faith, Virgil. I trust God to make my dream come true, even though it seems impossible. Virgil Mock said, No, Dan West. I mean, have faith. Faith is my Guernsey cow. Then another farmer whose red barn was full of Guernsey cows gave a heifer to Dan West, and then another farmer gave a heifer and another until the farmers had given Dan West 17 cows. The first three heifers the farmers gave to Dan West were named Faith, Hope, and Charity. Faith and 16 other heifers came to church one Sunday. The pastor prayed over the cows laid his hands, that was a memorable service, I'm sure, <laughs> laid, laid his hands on them and blessed them and sent them out into the world to help families. Faith was no longer just one heifer with a mission. Now there were 17 heifers with a mission. Faith, the Guernsey cow, rode to Mobile, Alabama in the back of a big truck. Then she sailed to the island of Puerto Rico where she found a happy home. There were 10 children in Faith's new family. They loved their cow and learned to take good care of her. It was the children's job to feed Faith, protect her, and keep her clean. Faith took good care of her new family, too. She gave the children lots of milk. The whole family was very happy. For the first time ever, they owned something valuable, a cow, and no one was hungry. Soon Faith had a calf. That first calf made the family very proud. Now they can help someone else just as Dan West helped them. They gave the calf to a neighbor family. The neighbors needed help, too. Faith's family taught the neighbors how to take good care of the new calf. Someday that calf would feed another family. Dan West and the farmers called their plan Heifer Project. It was easier to say Heifer Project than to say a group of farmers who give their young cows to Dan West so he can send them around the world to help feed hungry children. Heifer Project began to send more and more animals to feed people all over the world. Rabbits were sent, goats, chickens, honeybees were sent, draft horses, sheep, pigs were sent, ducks, geese, and fish were sent. Can just one person make a difference? Can just one person with an idea help feed hungry children all around the world? Can just one person make the world a better place? One person can make a difference if that person has a little faith. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.